when they get expertise or expertise assessment about extremist language, for example, in court cases, then we do know that those experts are not the best. I think Twitter is still trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> the Runet existed long before Twitter and it'll exist long after Twitter. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English language managing editor. And on today's show, we're talking about how Russia's federal censor, its media regulator, an agency called Raskomnadzor. That doesn't sound, I don't know if I emphasized the right thing there. Raskomnadzor. Raskomnadzor. That sounds better. Or we're going to call it RKN. I like that. I've heard people call it Roscoe. That's fun. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the censor thing, RKN, started throttling Twitter traffic earlier this week, Twitter traffic in Russia, as punishment for the social network's refusal to comply with Moscow's various tens of thousands, various takedown orders. Now, Russia and Twitter haven't really gotten along for years now. In fact, since uh, 2017, RKN has filed more than 28,000 takedown requests with Twitter. But it says the company still grants Russian users access to 3,168 of these materials containing illegal information. In the first half of last year alone, Russian state officials filed almost 9,000 takedown requests with Twitter, but Twitter acted in only about 20% of these cases. Now, we'll talk more in a bit about what kind of content is at stake here, but it's also worth noting that Russian officials actually fined Twitter about $55,000 last year for failing to move Russian users' personal data to servers located inside Russia. As you can imagine, that penalty, $55,000, changed exactly nothing about Twitter's policies. When it comes to throttling Twitter traffic in Russia now, RKN draws its authority from legislation enacted about a year and a half ago to safeguard Russia's internet sovereignty. Sovereignty, sovereignty, by the way, is one of those words that I always misspell. I can just never get it right. I don't, maybe other people have that problem. Man, I screw that word up big time. Anyway, the 2019 law on internet sovereignty requires Russian internet providers, the ISPs, to install special network filtration hardware that RKN controls centrally. This is equipment for what's called deep packet inspection, DPI. Another acronym for you, or initialism. Anyway, DPI is a more advanced form of data filtration that allows network administrators to block, prioritize, and reroute targeted traffic. You know, whatever traffic you say you want to do that to, you can do that to. Now, in the past, ISPs in Russia and in many other places have used deep packet inspection to limit the bandwidth of things like peer-to-peer -peer traffic, stuff like BitTorrent, which is a protocol popular among many online pirates and I'm sure you don't know anything about that. A decade ago, these downloads and uploads regularly overwhelmed Russia's still fairly limited internet capacity, and ISPs cracked down using DPI to keep their services functioning and afloat. So Russia is trying to throttle Twitter traffic, but not all Twitter users in Russia are actually experiencing any slowdowns, and that's because Twitter uses what is called a content delivery network, a CDN, 
And Twitter's CDN is run by a company called Akamai Technologies, which cash... <laughs> I almost said caches. Ooh, it caches, it sachets. It caches. I think that's how you say that word. It caches. It stay, saves and stores media files from Twitter and from its other clients on servers distributed around the world to ensure that these services function quickly and smoothly no matter where you are on our planet Earth. If you're a big social network, you need a global content delivery network. That's just how, that's how it works. But how exactly does a CDN hobble RKN's ability to use DPIs on Russian ISPs to throttle Twitter traffic? How are they trying to do this? Yeah, so all, all the acronyms. So let's first try and, and explain why not, not all users in Russia are experiencing this slower loading speed. That's Tanya Lokut, an associate professor in digital media and society at Dublin City University School of Communications, where she researches protests and digital media in Ukraine and Russia, as well as internet freedom, censorship, and internet governance in Eastern Europe. Dr. Lokut recently authored a book titled Beyond the Protest Square, about how citizens use digital social media to engage in public discontent. She says the first thing to understand about deep packet inspection is that not everybody has it, despite the fact that it's technically required by law in Russia. This equipment, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty sophisticated and it does work, but it's also really expensive. And obviously the, the law says, you know, internet service providers have to pay for it themselves. So at the moment, you know, according to some local experts, the four, like the four major internet service providers in Russia, including Rostelecom, Rost which is the state-owned one, they, they have actually installed this equipment. But obviously there are also lots of much smaller regional providers who are much poorer. And so many of them have not yet gotten around to it just because, you know, they like it's they can't afford it. Uh, and so there, you know, there, there are obviously compliance issues. But the fact is, that's why in Roskomnadzor's uh, message, they said 50 you percent know, of like land broadband. But they then on the other hand, all of the mobile service providers also have this this uh, equipment because they're obviously much, much richer. So so that's why not everybody is getting this. And what about content delivery networks, CDNs? What's what's so special about CDNs? Essentially, these are used by a lot of social media platforms. They're also used by well, pretty much like all large scale online networks or websites. And the thing is, you know, when a user tries to access a particular page or a piece of content, you know, wh wherever it's actually like hosted, might it might the, the path might be really, really long. And so what content delivery networks do is they say, well, okay, there's a mirror that we'll use that is much closer, which, you know, has some of this stuff cached or like pre preloaded basically. So the path to it and the, the time it takes for the user to get something that they kind of want to access is much faster. So that that is like a very crude explanation. But I think also that's why a lot of the times, you know, when you think you're accessing something that is like Twitter or whatever other website, it's actually, you know, hosted for you because of where you are around the world by, by a content delivery network like Akamai. And Akamai is, you know, it's one of those like really large behind-the-scenes players that most people don't know about or have never heard of, and yet, like, a, a large chunk of, of the internet actually depends on them. Russia throttling internet traffic like this in retaliation for a company's refusal to censor all the content RKN flagged has put Twitter back 
in the public spotlight in Russia, where it was also the center of a spirited debate earlier this year, when the network and many others finally refused service to Donald Trump in light of his incitement of violence at the U.S. Capitol building in January. Many prominent Russians, including people who rarely find themselves on the same side of any debate, like Alexei Navalny and pro-Kremlin pundit Vladimir Selevyov, they denounced banning Trump from Twitter as censorship. What then can we say about the differences between the censorship cultures in Russia and the United States, comparing Trump's deplatforming to the throttling of Twitter? I put this question to Marielle Weiermars, an assistant professor in cybersecurity and politics at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. She's also a visiting researcher at the University of Helsinki, and she's the co-editor of the Palgrave Handbook of Digital Russia Studies, as well as the author of the book Memory, Politics, and Contemporary Russia, Television, Cinema, and the State. She says you need to get a few things straight before going off and comparing what's happening online in America and in Russia. Well, I do think we have to point out first that we're talking about a democracy and an autocracy. So I think in terms of assessing how censorship works and to what extent we should call it censorship, that of course is a very important point to make. But in general, just the perception of whether or not such limitations are justified. I do think that even within Russia, you have very different perceptions of this. And so we see now, especially from the governmental side and from, you see a push towards, on the one hand, saying that all limitations should actually be enforced. Uh, so everything that they flag as being illegal content, it has to be removed. So the platforms should comply, even though we see that there's quite a high level of non-compliance. At the same time, they are very much against any actions by foreign platforms against Russian media. This is quite a new thing. So over the past year, they have been claiming pretty much every day that some Russian media is being censored on foreign platforms. Uh, so this is quite a, a new development. Uh, so they're in that sense, they are against content removal. They're against content moderation. So it, it really, really depends on the situation and what the uh, the content in question is and also whose interest is, uh, is supposed to serve. What do you think the future of, of content moderation is on these large networks, whether we're talking about you know, Twitter or even say like a Russian network like Vkontakte? Like, do you think that we're moving toward, you know, greater automation or greater state intervention? Or is, is there going to be like a community resurgence where it's, it's, it's thrown back to the users? Like, where, where do you see the kind of future of this going? I think the wind is blowing towards more content moderation. And of course, we also know that there is a push towards moderation. So this can be either from political circles or just from, from, the, from societal pressure. Uh, so we've seen similar things connected to hate speech, for example, around Black Lives Matter. We do see that this pushes platforms to do more, uh, and they might even be required to do more. But how do they actually do it? And that's where we run into issues. Uh, because on this scale and this speed, it means it has to be automated. But as soon as you automate these kind of decisions, it also means that you will make mistakes. There's several different schools of thought on this, and I think there's broad consensus that automated moderation is, it helps address part of the problem in like the most obvious stuff that you can automate, you know, like look for specific words or look for specific kinds of images like that. It does help. And I think like both Facebook and, and Twitter, Facebook to a larger extent, they're they're already using it and they're like a large proportion of the really easily identified stuff that violates their terms of service is removed precisely because it's it goes through this automated like moderation. But I think there's still a you know the the stuff that like 
the stuff that remains is the stuff that people can't agree on, right? So like things like, well, what constitutes hate speech? Like whose nipples are against the law and <laughs> whose aren't? Those kinds of things. Or like things like irony or like, oh no, this is a parody or like I was joking, you know, like those things, I don't, I mean, I don't know what level of automation or, and, you know, artificial intelligence you need to achieve in order to be able to actually catch those things. Probably the singularity. Well, yeah. And even then. So I think like, there will always be room for human moderation. The other question is, are companies actually going to invest in hiring more moderators, you know, and are, is it going to be the same kind of stuff that happens now where these moderators are severely underpaid in the Philippines or wherever, working long hours and not getting any counseling or psychological help, but they're watched, you know, they're forced to watch all this like gore and murder and like all those other things. You know, or are they actually going to properly do it or are they going to just offload it onto the community? Just say, well, like, the health of the platform depends on you. You, the users, are who we rely on. If you want to live in a nice, clean space, you have to police it yourselves, which is, you know, the model that Reddit uses largely. You know, but Reddit is a very different space from, from maybe not so different from Twitter, but certainly very different from Facebook, both in terms of scale and, like, the tone. But, like, on Reddit, is is more more tightly knit communities of people who re are really interested in talking about specific things. Whereas I think Twitter is still trying to figure out what it is <laughs> and it's kind of between. So yeah, I mean, who knows, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm very skeptical that they're going to hire more, more moderators and pay them well. So it's probably going to be a combination of automation and relying on the community. Automation and community policing might not sound like much fun, or maybe it does sound like fun. I don't know how you get your kicks. The point is, it's an interesting time for debates about censorship or content moderation, if you want to make it sound less political, or if you want to emphasize that we're not talking about state interventions and the freedom of speech so much as amplification, says Dr. Weiermars. What I really like at the moment uh, in discussions among especially communication scholars is that they say that, yes, we have a right to freedom of speech, you have a right to speech. But you do not have a right to amplification. Uh, so this is really pushing the debate from the content itself and what people actually say to whether or not that should be amplified that much. So much more towards these uh, algorithmic structures. And I think that is perhaps a bit more of a promising direction to go in. So on the one hand, it's, it's quite practical. So it is actually something that you can ask platforms to look into and to do something about. So just to, to change the dynamics of platforms. But at the same time, you do not push them towards making decisions on what you should be able to say, since we know that that is so difficult. So perhaps that is a more feasible direction. In terms of the the content that Russia's censor typically flags, can you give listeners like a sense of, of what they're usually going after? Because I know in their public statements about Twitter's noncompliance with its you know takedown requests, they like to talk about, oh, it's child pornography, it's it's drug propaganda, incitements to to you know violence even, like that kind of they talk about things that my impression is that they're already a violation of Twitter's terms of service or the terms of service of basically any network. And so I, there's a little bit of confusion on, on, on my part when I read that is because it, my understanding would be, well, Twitter, they they should be removing those things. And why aren't they if that's indeed what's happening? But I also know that Raskomnadzor is a notoriously unreliable narrator. So can you give me a sense of like, what are they typically going after? What are they, what are they most interested in 
in having removed. So we have a massive lack of information. Is that this is uh, probably just in the classical categories? Um, so suicide apparently is a very big thing. And so anything even remotely related to suicide that would be a, a sort of no go for the Russian regulator. And this has been uh, the case for for several years. And uh, harms to children is also something they're really uh, taking. And taking action on. But the issue here is that the only thing that they report are just how many things they flag for each category. And uh, we do not really know what that actually means. Uh, so we are not able to assess whether they flagged it correctly. Uh, the only thing that we do know is that whenever there are reports uh, about the actual details, so for example, when they get expertise or expertise assessment about extremist language, for example, in court cases, then we do know that those experts are not, are not the best. Uh, so they tend to make quite well, strange interpretations of the actual language samples that they're asked to interpret. Uh, so I think we should definitely question uh, whether everything that they flag is indeed a violation of those terms, so that it indeed should be removed. In your view, like what kind of review board does the best content moderation or reaches the best judgments? Because, you know, as you've, as we've just kind of gone over, Raskomnadzor is, is not particularly reliable, and that could be because a lot of its its targeting efforts are politically motivated, and that gets into the kind of authoritarian, you know, autocratic nature of, of the Russian state sort of broadly. But what, I mean, in, in the United States, for instance, or in, like in really any, in Europe, any, any democracy, I suppose, you, there are, there's, there's kind of an ongoing debate as to whether or not private companies are best left to handle this and then kind of have market forces just sort of running the show, I guess, you know, customers and clients can just go where they feel they're getting the best moderation. Or do you involve a kind of like public accountability and potentially involve, you know, the government? Or is there a space where the government could do this or a public body could do this uh, responsibly and reliably? Because if certainly Raskomnadzor is not the only example of what could be done, you know, with a, with a public enterprise. So like, I don't know, like, would you see avenues there? This is one of the, the big difficult questions that we have at the moment. When I follow discussions about how it should be regulated or not uh, in democracies, then I think we speak too easily about imposing restrictions. So I see in Russia how easily these are expanded and are uh, wrongly interpreted, are applied way too broadly, discriminately, pragmatically. Uh, so I think that we... Uh, we do not take these kind of concerns seriously enough. But this is, of course, also like my, my own cultural background. Uh, so I, I tend to favor open discussion. Uh, and I think that we should have multiple perspectives and that this uh, can be quite, even quite strong language, as long as you do not go over the thresholds that are legally defined. So this is like actual call to violence and all those kind of things. So I think we already have those legal frameworks in place and the step then is to make sure that those are also respected in terms of online content moderation. Uh, so indeed, you should have uh, for users the opportunity to flag content and to make sure that actually something is done with these flaggings. I think that's very important. But perhaps we can think more about indeed the prioritization. So whether or not something is promoted or not, uh, that's, that should be more the direction of choice. So sometimes I'm a little bit worried that we speak too easily about, uh, especially following the hate speech discussion. I think that oftentimes what actually is hate speech, the definition of it tends to be broadened so much that I think, okay, this is very dangerous territory uh, as far as I'm concerned, since I think that we actually need discussion. We need debate. Otherwise, uh, we will have nothing left. So if you cannot actually have open discussions, I think that is a very worrisome condition. 
think to begin with, the, the main difference is that, you know, in Russia, it's, it's perpetrated by the state, mostly, right? It's, it's the state who makes these requests and who then makes these decisions about either fines or court cases or throttling. And, and it's part of this kind of overall system and an overall approach to how the internet should work in Russia, which I think to, you know, to a large extent is of course informed by the kind of regime that exists in Russia and its historical roots. It's like, you know, who's in charge and who should be policing all these spaces. Whereas I think in the United States, that's a, it's a really different situation where, you know, there is the first amendment, obviously, but just there's the expectation that the state isn't, it's not the state's job to police what its citizens say. I think what, what, what really trips them up, you know, like the, the Roskomnadzor and Russian censors is how, how they really try to make, to make it look like they're, they're, they're so experienced and they have all this expertise and they're so good at this thing and like they're doing this and they're, 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 you know, it's a warning. So we're being soft on it. And people are like, you can't even do this. Like, so the incompetence of, of how it's actually done. So to, to me, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I just wonder like what, what this does to, Roskomnadzor's reputation in the eyes of, you know, whatever, the, the Twitterati or the, the super active Russian citizens online. But just more generally, like with, you know, the reputation of the state itself and, you know, like how seriously people take the threats that it makes or the danger that it poses. And I, I think it was, I think Andrei Soldatov was saying, that, you know, they tried really hard to, like, to, to sort of like burnish their own image to, you know, like damage Twitter's image to, to please <laughs> the president. And it didn't really work because they kind of screwed it up because it, you know, it didn't really damage like people's access to Twitter that much, but it created all of these like unintended side effects or other websites went down. And in the end, it just make them look stupid. So, you know, I think this has a lot to do with like this overall like uh, approach of like of doing everything on the, on the spot and doing like everything in an ad hoc way, which characterizes a lot of how Russia does things. And it, you know, it's not always unsuccessful because sometimes it's cool to have spontaneous stuff that happens and to takes people unawares. But m- more often than not, it just backfires spectacularly and like in the end I wonder you know like is Roskomnadzor like in its current form going to still exist in you know like five years or will it be subsumed into whatever other forces exist do you think that they're they've like gotten some good experience here I mean that you know there's the government spent all this money or maybe the ISPs have spent the money, but the government spent, you know, a fair chunk of change too on all of its internet sovereignty initiatives and so on. And at some point, it's almost like if you're going to make all these investments and do it, like turn it, flip the switch, let's see what it does. You know, like I want to fire this thing off. I want to see what it looks like. Is it possible that there's a utility in the fact that they're at least doing something? I mean, like some, there's got to be some, but some hawks in the administration, I would think, looking at this and thinking, at least we're doing something like we're getting, we're getting something done. That's nice. Well, that's, that's, that's their rationale for, for doing this. But like, as I said, you know, it, it just looks like it's not very effective, you know? And like the, the, all of the like in, internet 
gurus or whoever, you know, people sitting in their telegram channels, they're all like, now, is this all you've got? Like, really? Well, I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, but like, is you know, I don't know if that's something to be proud of. Whether or not this will actually drive them to like try and prove that they can flip the switch, they might. I think it also depends on what the reaction will be from the higher ups. I mean, if Twitter is blocked, those people will find other outlets. They'll, they'll still be on Telegram. Most of them do have channels on Telegram. It's probably going to change, you know, the, like the shape of the runet. But I mean, the runet existed long before Twitter and it'll exist long after Twitter, I'm sure. So. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we dissected how Russia's media regulator is now throttling local Twitter traffic and shaping the country's approach to internet censorship. We welcome back to the show Professors Tanya Lokot and Marielle Weirmars, two internet freedom experts who study Russia and Eastern Europe. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English-language show, and I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.